Well, at this time, I'd like to invite the kids to head back to Children's Church, ages 3 to 5, 3 to kindergarten. If you're going back for Children's Church, feel free to join uh, Miss Maggie and Brenda back there as you head to Children's Church. The rest of us may turn to 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. We continue on our second week here in our series through 1 Peter. We're going to be in verses 3 through 9 this morning, kind of a continuation of Peter's greeting. 1 Peter comes after James before 2 Peter, towards the end of your Bibles. I would encourage you to have Bibles with you, and I would add, I would encourage you not even to have Bibles on your phones. I think there's something about having the physical, written Word of God before you that you can interact with that helps uh, to follow along, to retain, uh, to impact. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, tell us, we'll get one for you. If you see a Bible lying around, take it. Uh, just have a Bible with you. Uh, especially today, there's a lot here, and we're going to keep referring back to the verses. So I'd encourage you to follow along in your Bibles with us. In fact, I would ask you to stand with me, if you're able and willing, stand with me as I read First Peter 1, 3 through 9. I'm reading from the ESV translation. First Peter 1, 3 through 9, which says, Blessed be the God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You may be seated. Our Father and God be with us this morning. In this room... For those joining elsewhere, watching later, even, for those in Children's Church, be with us, we pray. We ask in faith because you're a faithful God. Ask, Lord, that you would speak, that the the logic of your words would be clear, the content be encouraging and animating to our souls. Cause us, Lord, to worship you by your grace and by your spirit to the glory of your Son. Amen. My wife and I really enjoy watching cooking competition shows. Uh, I I think I've said this before. You may know this about us. It's one of the things we like to do when we want to turn our brains off at the end of the night and the kids have gone to bed and watch something like Chopped or... 
Cutthroat Kitchen or Top Chef or Beat Bobby Flay. Or what, any, they're all the same, just various uh, iterations of the same concept of people cooking plates of food and they're judged and critiqued. And then through that, sometimes you kind of learn about how to cook. You learn through the critique. The, this uh, steak was overdone. This fish was underdone. Too much seasoning, not enough seasoning. Uh, the flavors were muddled on the plate. You didn't put enough flavor in whatever it may be. You hear the critiques of the judges. One of the critiques I, I've never understood, and I'll confess, I, I've never understood anybody when they say this about food, is this is too rich. <laughs> this may be a confession. Fundamentally, I don't understand that critique. I have never had a dessert that's too rich. Uh, I don't get it. It's like saying there's too much cake in this cake. Uh, I don't, that doesn't make sense to me. You can't have enough. You can't pack enough in there. There's... You can't have too much steak in your steak. There's too much flavor in this. No, nothing's too rich. I, I love rich, flavorful food. And maybe that's why I like this passage in 1 Peter. Because this passage in 1 Peter is rich. It is dense. You may have felt that while we were reading it. It's lots of theological terms and concepts that Peter throws out, and you're trying to follow the logic and say, how do I make sense of this? Or how do I make sense of this? Uh, One commentator said, there are few passages in the New Testament where more of the great fundamental Christian ideas come together. It is a gospel-rich passage. Why? Consider the context. The Apostle Peter is writing to Christians scattered throughout the world, and they are suffering through the normal and abnormal things of life, through persecution, living, as we talked about last week, as strangers and exiles in the world. As Christians, they know that this is not their ultimate home, that their home is in heaven, their home is in the new creation, in the world that awaits. But right now... In this life, we as Christians are struggling and suffering. And Peter wants to encourage those who are struggling and suffering. So in this introduction, this praise, Peter writes this call to worship, and in this he kind of unleashes the full arsenal of the gospel to encourage his hearers. It's almost as if he is using every gospel concept he can to encourage his hearers to endure in the midst of their trials. And Peter calls them to hope, to a life of praise and rejoicing. I think the big idea of this passage, I'll put it this way, that our future hope in heaven empowers our present joy in trials. For all the confusing language and syntax, I think that sums up what Peter is saying throughout these verses. Our future hope in heaven empowers our present joy in trials. In other words, we rejoice now because of our future hope in heaven. That our future hope produces present joy. As I said, this passage its a call to worship. And there are actually two main words, two main verbs that kind of drive the whole text. If you look at the passage, there are two words that kind of start off each main thought, and you can divide the passage in half. The words are blessed in verse 3, 
then rejoice in verse 6. And both of those kind of drive the two main thoughts of this passage. So we're going to split up the passage into two big chunks, 3 through 5, then 6 through 9. They talk about our future hope in heaven that empowers our present joy and trials. First, verses 3 through 5. Let's just look at that chunk. And verses 3 through 5 describe our future hope in heaven. This is a call to worship. And worship because of our future hope in heaven. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Two, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Like I said, this is a call to worship. This is a call to praise. Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is about God. We're praising God, the Father our Father, the Father of the Lord Jesus. And in these few verses, 3 through 5, I think Peter gives three reasons why we bless God or praise God. Three reasons for our worship and our praise of Him. The first reason, verse uh, 3 or 4, which is verse 3, God has caused us to be born again. This is the first reason we bless God and praise Him. God has caused us to be born again. This is what we call, being born again, regeneration, new birth. God has caused us to be alive. You might ask, well, why do we need to be reborn? Why do we need to be made new? Why do we need to have spiritual rebirth? Well, we were born initially into a certain family tree. It goes all the way back to Adam. We were born under sin. Born under the curse of Adam. We were born into sin and death that has been passed down to us ever since Adam and Eve transgressed in the garden. We are part of his family line, and that is what we are naturally born into. And if we have any hope in this life of getting out of sin and death, we need to be reborn into a new family, a new kingdom, a new family tree with a new head. And the head is Christ. We have to be reborn. This is what Jesus talks about with Nicodemus in John 3. You have to be born again. He's all confused. What do you mean born again? I can't crawl back into my mother's womb. And Jesus says, no, no, I'm talking about a different kind of birth. You have to be spiritually reborn. And God, praise him, if you are in Christ, has caused you to be born again. Let me ask you, who remembers the day of their birth? I'm not asking, can you recite your birthday? Do you remember actually being born? You say, well, no, of course I don't remember that. What part did you play in your birth? You were a, what, a passive participant in that experience. Your mother was very active, and if you're like my kids, your father was kind of there. (laughs) But you were definitely a passive participant in that process. You can't birth yourself. 
Somebody else has to do it for you. And the same is true with being born again. You did not do that. What does Peter say? God has caused us to be born again. It is his work. Uh, theologians use the phrase, and I think I've used this before, I'll teach you a, a fun theology phrase, monergistic regeneration. So what is synergistic work? Synergistic is two people working together. People working together is synergy. They're joined together, working together. What is monergistic work? That's the work of one person doing work alone. And the idea of monergistic regeneration is that God alone is the one who has caused you to be born again. It is his work, and that's what Peter is saying. Praise God. He has caused this in you. You can't take credit for it. You didn't do it. It wasn't your work. God has caused it. So we praise him. That's the first reason we bless and praise God, because he's caused us to be born again. It's his work, so praise him. Here's the second reason. He has born us into a future hope. We're not only born again into a new kingdom, we're born again into a hope that we have. Not a dead hope, a living hope. A hope that grows, a hope that is alive. What is your hope in this world? It's a question worth considering. What is your great hope? Is your great hope that you will have a good job someday? Is your great hope that you will be married and have kids and have a perfect family life? Is your great hope that the Chiefs will win today? There are fun things to hope in in life. There are good things to hope in in life. But none of them are ultimate. None of them are unfailing or unfading. There is one thing that we have ultimate future hope in that is sure, that is worth baking our whole life on, and as this hope that we are given through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because he has been raised from the dead, we have this hope, we have an inheritance in Christ. So Peter here de- defines what is our hope. It is that we have this inheritance. The concept of inheritance is important in the Bible. Think back to the Old Testament. Israel, God's people, they had an inheritance. What was their inheritance? The promised land. And as they enter, all the tribes are apportioned the land, and all the people who are part of Israel are each given a part of the land. That is their inheritance, and that is their hope that God gives to them. By their divine right, by being God's people, they have an inheritance of the land. Did the Israelites receive their inheritance? Yes. Did they lose it? Yeah. You can lose an earthly inheritance. I recently read kind of a tragic story about a homeless woman in Oregon. Uh, Because of years of drug abuse and general abuse uh, leading to mental illness, she spent years homeless and died homeless in 2020. What she didn't know because the authorities could not figure out where she was or track her down because she was homeless, that in 2016, her mother had died and left her an inheritance of almost $900,000 that could not be given to her. She lost her inheritance. Earthly inheritances can be lost. In Christ... 
you have an inheritance that cannot be lost, that is secure. Why did the Israelites lose their inheritance? Disobedience, rebellion, idolatry, removed from the land. The reason they lost it is because it was dependent upon them. We have a different inheritance, which is heaven, a new creation, and we cannot lose. Why? Because it's not up to us to keep it. Look at the text. Who's doing the keeping? Who's ensuring that this inheritance will be received? God kept it in heaven for you. Not only is it his work to cause you to be born again, it is his work to keep the inheritance for you. There are certain joys I have in traveling. One of the little tiny travel joys, every once in a while you get to rent a car. And I love renting a car because you get in it and you say, this is clean. This is, this is nice. This smells better than my car. It's pristine. Somebody's done some work. There's a full tank of gas in it. I don't have to immediately stop and fill up. The agency, the rental car agency, has reserved that for me. They kept it for me. If it was up to me, it wouldn't look like that. But they've kept it for me. So God has kept a place in heaven for you. Doesn't Jesus say this? I go and prepare a room. And because of this, because it's God who keeps it, that, that inheritance is perfect, eternal, and sure, is unblemished, unfading, unstained, undefiled, imperishable, it cannot be lost because God has kept it. And do you want more encouraging good news? Here's the third reason to praise. Because God not only keeps our inheritance for us, he keeps us for our inheritance. God has not only kept an inheritance in heaven for you, God is the one who keeps you for heaven. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, you, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You are being preserved. You are being kept. If you are in Christ, you are being kept for God. That word guarded is a military term. Think of a military guard. What does a guard do? It protects from attack from the outside, or a guard keeps from escape from the inside. That is what a guard does. That is what God does for you as he guards your inheritance and guards you for the inheritance. He keeps you from attack and stumbling from the outside. He also keeps you from wandering away. I'll, I'll throw out another doctrine. This is called the perseverance of the saints, or the preservation of the saints. Uh, an old doctrine that basically says, if you are truly in Christ, and if you are kept by God, then God will keep keeping you, that you will not be lost. I heard an old pastor say, I know I can't lose my salvation, because if I could lose my salvation, I would. Right? We are prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God we love. But God keeps us, and Jesus keeps us. Isn't this what Jesus says? John 10, 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He is a shepherd who keeps his sheep. The Westminster Confession of Faith describes it this way, this idea of the perseverance or the preservation of God's people that they endure to the end. 
Westminster Confession says, They, whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere there into the end and be eternally saved. God keeps his people for their inheritance. Does that mean we have no part to play? We just kind of sit and do nothing, and then God just carries us along. No. Look at the text. How does God keep us? How does God guard us? By faith. Do you see the interplay of God's work and our work in this? In this preserving or persevering? God guards and protects through faith or by faith. We have active faith as as God keeps us. Faith is the means by which he keeps us. Over the summer, uh, we took our family to Clinton Lake, lake nearby, and just had a nice day at the beach and swimming and hanging out and eating chips that got sand in them and all that, just all the things you do at the beach and trying to read a book, but not really. Uh, And at some point, we were swimming and going about, and Nora and I decided we were going to swim to the buoy line. So we did that together. But, but as we were swimming, we realized that buoy line had moved out further than in the morning when we first saw it. And we didn't realize how far it moved out. So as we were swimming, we were doing well, but there was a moment of panic in me where I realized, uh, well, I hope we make it. I think we're going to make it. I'm not 100% sure, like 98, which is too unsure for that moment. Uh, but there was no choice. We were far enough out. It was get to the buoy line, rest on it, and then come back. Now, as we were going, we made it all the way back. You know that because we're here today. The whole time, Nora was swimming. She never stopped swimming. If she had stopped swimming, she would have fallen. She was doing her part. But I was not going to let her fall. Right? As her father, I was going to make sure, one way or another, she kept swimming. This is the preservation of the saints. It's how God works. He makes sure your faith will keep going. Is your faith, is your genuine faith, is your genuine work, and He empowers it and makes sure that you're kept for the end so that final day where salvation is fully revealed that future salvation. This is our sure and living hope. God has caused us to be born again. God has kept our inheritance in heaven and the new creation for us. And God has kept us for that inheritance. That is a hope and encouragement while we live in this strange and alien world. And we have a sure future if we are in Christ. Do we get discouraged? Are we at times anxious? Yeah. And Peter knows that. Which is why he writes this. And Peter doesn't say, I know you're discouraged, but don't worry, you've got the power within you. Peter doesn't fill us up on self-esteem. Peter doesn't 
uh, poo-poo it away, oh, don't worry. It doesn't give us even a try. Eh, things will be better. Peter grounds our hope in the truth of the gospel that because of Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, God will keep us. And we have a sure and certain future that will never fade away. So praise him. Verses 3 through 5 are a call to worship because of our future hope in heaven. Verses 6 through 9, kind of an encouragement that you're already worshiping. That's what Peter's doing. He's telling his hearers and his readers, be encouraged, you're already rejoicing. And Peter just wants to encourage them because they are. He says, keep doing it. You are already rejoicing. So if the first few verses focus on our future hope in heaven. These verses focus on our present joy in trials. Our present joy in trials. Verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So just like that word bless kind of controls verses 3 through 5, the word rejoice kind of controls verses 6 through 9. And here Peter is giving encouragement that they do rejoice. And Peter tells them, here are the circumstances in which you are rejoicing. You're rejoicing and praising in challenging circumstances, and specifically two challenges that the people face while they're rejoicing. Peter's encouraging them, saying, even in these challenging things, you're rejoicing. And what are the challenging things, the challenging context that they're rejoicing in? Well, first, they're rejoicing while suffering. They're rejoicing in the midst of various trials, he said. You rejoice, though now you have been grieved by various trials. You're rejoicing in suffering. Uh, what kind of trials does Peter have in mind here? Well, primarily, I think he's talking about the persecution they would face as a result of being Christian. It's well documented. The early church faced persecution in Rome because they were followers of Christ. So, Peter's saying you're rejoicing in the midst of your suffering for the name of Christ, for being a Christian, for being exiles for being isolated, ostracized for your faith. I think Peter has that primarily in mind, but he doesn't specify what the various trials are. In fact, he says there are various trials. So I think in this, Peter also includes all kinds of trials you just normally face in life. Not only persecution, but suffering just because you're on earth and you live in the context of death and sickness and evil. So you're going to face various trials. That is what waits in store for you. But you rejoice. This is the life of the Christian from the beginning. The mark of the Christian from the beginning. You rejoice, though grieved, by various trials. Scholar Tom Schreiner said the New Testament regularly sees sufferings as the road believers must travel to enter into God's kingdom. 
If you live long in this world, you will suffer. And we felt this. Eldwood noted, we're in a time where a few of our people are suffering, and we feel that as a church. And we look through the praises and petitions in our bulletin, and what do we find? Rejoicing and suffering. We are a people with a sorrow and a song. And that has been the case from the beginning. As believers, we face trials and yet rejoice. How can we rejoice? Why do we rejoice? Because we know the trial is temporary. Peter says, you suffer, but only for a little while. Only in this life. Whatever suffering you experience, whatever pain you're going through now, whatever trial you face, it is momentary. It is a small amount of time relative to the inheritance that is waiting for you. Paul says it well in Romans 8.18, For I consider that sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. When you put these two things side by side, our present sufferings and our future glory and hope, they're not worth comparing. One so far outmeasures the other. The hope we have is greater than the suffering we have now. And so we can have joy in the midst of suffering. And then, Peter says something really interesting. And every once in a while when you're reading a scripture, something pops out to you, just ask, why is that there? That's a weird phrase. And there's a weird phrase in here that Peter throws out. He's talking about being grieved by various trials. He says, if necessary. What does he mean, if necessary? Why would these various trials be necessary? Who determines that they're necessary? Have you ever suffered and wondered why? Why is this happening? Who allowed this? Why is this going on now? I think Peter gives us an answer. It's not the only answer, but he gives us an answer. Why trials might be necessary. There's a movie called uh, Green Street Hooligans with Elijah Wood. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. This isn't a recommendation, so don't hear that from your pastor. Um, But Green Street Hooligans is a movie about soccer hooligans over in the UK, gangs that are formed based around allegiance to soccer teams. And as soccer hooligans or football hooligans, uh, they often get in fights and clashes with other rival hooligan gangs. And in the story, Elijah Wood's character is kind of initiated into this soccer hooligan gang, and he gets into his first fight. And at one point, while getting punched, he starts to smile. And he talks about almost becoming addicted to the fight. Why? He says, once you've taken a few punches, you realize you're not made of glass. In the story, what the fighting had done for him is made him realize he would live. He could take it. I'm not saying go get in fights. I'm not saying go rush into trials. What I am saying is trials and suffering reveal something in us that our faith will last. And part of why God gives those trials, why they are necessary, the purpose of them, 
is to both build our faith and give us assurance that our faith is real. That when it's tested, it lasts. Unlike gold. Gold, though durable, I think it melts at something close to 2,000 degrees. I might be wrong on that. You can Google it. But gold has a, a high melting point. It's a durable thing, but it still perishes if you heat it up enough. As durable as it is, our faith, if we are in Christ, doesn't. Under any heat, if you are in Christ, real faith lasts. It's how you tell the genuine thing. There's ways you can tell fake money versus real money. If you've got an eye for it, I don't. Uh, But you can tell by the kind of ink that's used or uh, the watermark on it. When I worked at a gas station right out of college, when I was in college, if there were large bills that were given to us, we had to hold them up to the light and look for that. There's a little microfilm print that's inside the bill. So if that isn't there, it's a fake bill. There's ways you can tell that money is real or fake. How do you tell if your faith is real? If God is the one who causes you to be born again, how do you know that it's real and it's there? If God has caused it, well, suffering, trials, are how we tell if you've got the real thing. When you go through the trial and still say at the other end, like Job, blessed be the name of the Lord. It reveals true faith. Look at this. Purpose in trials to reveal true faith. What's the product? What's the result? Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful phrase. This may result in the suffering as you endure, result in praise and glory and honor. Here's a question. For whom? Whose praise, whose glory, whose honor? If you're a humble Christian, your first instinct might be, well, the praise of God. It's a good instinct. But I actually think it's wrong in this text. In this text, what Peter is saying is, your suffering, if you endure at the end, will result in your praise and your glory and your honor. That at the final revealing of salvation and glorification, you will be praised and honored and glorified. That's what Peter's saying. You'll be raised in honor. That's the product. So you suffer now for a little while, and you feel the heat of it in this life. But at the end, here's where this ends. Your praise, your honor, your glory in the new creation. So rejoice now and keep rejoicing as you do. The first challenging circumstance, you have sufferings for a little while. And the second challenging circumstance that Peter lists at the end, here, here's the other challenge we face. We don't see Jesus. That's pretty plain. Like, that's the point Peter makes at the end here. Peter had seen Jesus. Peter had walked with Jesus. Peter had heard Jesus. He knew what his voice sounded like. Peter knew how tall Jesus was. I don't know how tall Jesus was. Do you? Peter knew that because he had seen him and touched him. But he's writing to people who had never seen Jesus. They had only heard the word about Jesus. You haven't seen him, 
but you love him. You cannot now see him, but you believe in him. And you have joy in rejoicing in it. So Peter's encouraging them. You don't see Jesus, but you love him and believe in him. Our faith, our Christian faith, is logical, right? It is logical, it is coherent, it is sound. The doctrines of Christianity are reasonable, and they can appeal to logic and reason. Our faith is historical, it's rooted in history, of historical truth and fact, specifically the fact of the resurrection. And I love that about the Christian faith. It is, I think, bulletproof. But it is still faith. We don't see Jesus yet. So we live in an age of faith. The, the, the Christmas presents, they're under the tree. We can see them wrapped, but we don't know what they are yet. Right? If you're like me, you start anticipating Christmas right about now. Football season coincides with get ready for Christmas season in my mind. Like we anticipate Christmas. We anticipate it'll be good. We anticipate it'll be joyous. We anticipate we'll be able to be generous and sacrificial and love one another and all these things. And most of all, we anticipate that we're going to celebrate the Son, Jesus Christ. That's all anticipatory. Until then, we're waiting and we have faith that it'll be good. That's what Peter's here is we're living through, and that's what we live through, the time of anticipation, of faith. And lastly, look at the outcome of our faith. Why are we rejoicing now? Because this is the sure outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. That word outcome, this is just a bonus thought. The word outcome is one of my favorite Greek words, telos. I like telos because in seminary, in my preaching class, we had to develop telos statements. Telos means the final goal, the end, the main point, the final purpose. And in preaching class, we had to develop telos statements. This was the big idea, the main purpose. Why are we here today? What's the purpose? What's the end? So, now that I've revealed kind of the behind the scenes, you know, now in every sermon you can listen, what's the telos statement of this sermon? What's the point? Here, what's the telos of our rejoicing, of our faith, of all that has come before? Here it is. The salvation of your souls. We rejoice now because our souls are saved. Here's the encouragement from 1 Peter. Praise be to God and rejoice because we have a sure and certain hope. The world is fading, but God has prepared for us an eternal place of rest. Our future hope in heaven empowers our present joy and trials. So just as we close, I want to give you a reminder. Here's the hope and joy that we have. God has caused us to be born again. God has raised Jesus from the dead. In Jesus, God has kept a place in the new creation for us. God has guarded us by his power and kept us for the new creation. The trials we face are momentary. The trials we face are necessary to shape and prove our true faith. 
Our trials, though, will lead us to praise and honor and glory. And though we do not see God, we love him and believe and rejoice in him as we await the future salvation of our souls. So we praise him and rejoice in hope. So let me ask you, do you have that hope? Is this your hope? In good days and in the really bad days, is this your hope that God has kept you for heaven, kept heaven for you? If you do not have that hope, what is your hope in? Is it trustworthy? Is it unfailing? Is it worth your life and your hope? This morning, the Lord God of the universe, the Son Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, invite you to this hope. Call you to this hope. There's a waiting in heaven for you through Jesus Christ, resurrected from the dead. You can have real and true hope that will never fail. There's eternity of rest for you in Jesus Christ. Please have this hope. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the hope we have in Christ. It is not a naive hope. It is not a hope that disregards the challenges of this world, but, Lord, it is a hope that leans into them and knows they're there and recognizes the extreme difficulties of this life and yet rejoices because we have a sure and better hope in Jesus Christ and our place in him in the new creation in heaven. Lord, let us never lose that hope but trust in it and have faith until we finally see your son face to face. Until that day, Lord, may we praise you and rejoice together. Amen.